providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour of the Bible line here in May, and we're so glad you can be with us fresh back from Israel just a few days ago. And I want to say that we had a great trip for those who are wondering, and we will, God willing, maybe have another one in 2023. We will see. With that said, if you are new to the Bible line for the next hour, we, we take specific questions that people have. Maybe there's a passage of scripture that you're studying and you're not sure in ter- terms of its meaning and its application, or you're looking for biblical counsel on a particular challenge of ministry or area of your life or family. If we can be of help by God's grace, we will. Again, there are several ways that you can contact us, TBL, that stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. People can call in during the week at WAGP, and again, that number that most folks are calling today is the 843 South Carolina Exchange, 525-1859. And if you have a burning question during the week, you can call that number, and there's a line that you can leave a a verbal message of 30 seconds or less. Um, So keep that in mind. And when your questions are answered, we typically email you back to let you know, hey, it was answered today, because sometimes it takes a couple months because we get so many questions uh, before a specific issue is uh, raised and developed. Anyway, we're glad you're here. You can also email us directly at TBL. That stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. All right, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. All right, Pastor, as I go ahead and get ready to read this first um, question, let me ask you to just kind of adjust your microphone so it's a little bit closer to your uh, mouth there. there. Okay, there good. All right, Thank now you. you're sounding your old self Yes, there. sir. <laughs> okay. Uh, Kevin from Salem, Virginia says, can you share your thoughts on fellows, uh, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes? Are they a legitimate organization to partner with and share my treasure, time, and talents? Tell me what you know of their history and current stance, and thank you for your time. Well, I've been engaged with FCA since I went into campus ministry in 1978, and I've met a lot of FCA staff, some very, very fine people. Uh, Like anything else, uh, a ministry has a local reflection, and so it may be very true to their doctrinal statement, to the things they believe, or sometimes and occasionally it's not. And this is true with most campus ministries today. Crew, for instance, formerly known as Campus Crusade for Christ, facing the same challenges, the same problems. Overall, FCA is a fine organization. One of our members who was here about 10 years ago, her father was the president of FCA, a very fine Christian man. Uh, With that said, uh, they're conservative. So I don't think you can expect them at any time in the near future, you know, hooking together with the religious left. Uh, They have a a passion to combine sports with their passion to communicate the gospel. And since, you know, uh, sports is really almost in an unhealthy way a a god in our nation. It's a sports-crazed nation. Um... You know, to use that platform to talk to people about the Lord is a great thing to do. And 
they are, I would say, the biggest uh, Christian um, ministry organization to students because not only do they combine college campuses, but they also combine high schools. And so that's, uh, that's really exciting in terms of what they're doing. I will say that um, FCA took a very good, healthy stance on issues like homosexuality and transgenderism just a few years ago. And because they did, um, you know, they got a lot of negative feedback, but they haven't backed down. So I deeply respect them for that. Even Chick-fil-A, because they didn't want to be controversial, they stopped their support to FCA and to the Salvation Army uh, because um, they didn't want to be entangled with an organization that took such a strong stance. And that was really surprising to me. I don't think Dan Cathy, if he were alive, would have made the same kind of decision. I don't think he really would have cared. Um, But with all that said, their goal is to reach men and women with the gospel of Christ. And they don't think that to be a Christian means you're a soft or a weak athlete, that you can be an excellent athlete. And they want to reach students and they want to reach coaches and they want to touch the community. But like anything else, you've got to look at the local expression. Take for instance, Southern Baptist, the Southern Baptist Convention. Right now, a lot of churches in the SBC are vacillating. There was a time when you could pretty much count on an SBC church as being conservative, faithful, uh, critical in their um, things that they should be critical of, affirming to the things they should be affirming of, but they are drifting. And that's very, very sad. And so I will say that there are some expressions of FCA that are not healthy. So you have to look at the individual organization, who the leadership are. Because, again, you could have a leader who has the gospel, but maybe he drinks. Maybe he watches, you know, R-rated movies, and he shares these kinds of things with the students. And so they think, well, if coach so-and-so can do that or staff member so-and-so can do that, maybe I can do that. And, again, the organization has standards, but with that said, those standards always are not flushed out. I will say in terms of Beaufort County, we have a superb, excellent FCA, really a great one. So I'm very, very pleased with what's going on in this county. So you have to be discerning in the day that we live in. You can't assume anything. You can read a healthy doctoral statement, but how it's fleshed out in daily life might be an entirely different thing. So look at each and every one. All right. I think we have someone who's waiting. Yes. Called in line. Actually, we've got a couple of people on the line. So let's go to our first caller. We've got Michael from uh, Bluffton, I believe, on line one. Thanks for holding. Good morning, Mike. You're on the air. Go ahead, hey, Michael. Hey, how are you? Doing well. Thank you. Awesome. I just wanted to uh, first and foremost, real quickly, thank you for the, the station and everything. I work in a sweatshop, a cabinet shop down in uh, Bluffton, and uh, we're spreading the light down here. My my question is, I'm a I've been a uh, had a heart. I was born with heart disease as a baby. I had my first surgery in 1971. Now, of course, growing up, it was always why was I given this broken body? But you know, I've come to realize it as a blessing instead of a curse because it gives me a whole different perspective on the resurrected body and also how we see suffering, you know, you draw closer to Christ. So I guess it's a two-part question. One, you know, everybody thinks we're going to float around in the clouds and not a resurrected body. That's something I have a hard time convincing people of, even though it's right there in the Scripture, that no, we'll have a resurrected body. And then two, how suffering really draws us closer to God. 
and I'll take my answer off the air, okay? Okay, good. So, you know, the scripture is very, very clear that uh, we will walk on real streets in real physical bodies, but they will be different from the bodies that we have now. So your congenital heart problem will not be an issue when you meet the Lord in in heaven. You will ultimately have a new body. The resurrection has not taken place yet for saints who've gone home to be with the Lord. We're awaiting that. But Paul, for instance, reminds us in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of his power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So if someone dies today, the immaterial portion of man to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. They are immediately in the presence of the Lord. And it appears in Scripture that they are given an intermediate body that is indeed recognizable. For instance, Old Testament saints have not yet been resurrected, and yet we see Moses and Elijah on the Mount of the Transfiguration, and they are identifiable as such, and they're in some kind of a spirit body. You see in the Revelation, tribulation saints who have died during the time of the Great Tribulation, and they're in heaven. They're clothed in white robes, and so you have to have something to hang the robe on. But ultimately, at least for the church saints, our resurrection is still in the future. Uh, we are told in First Thessalonians 4 that Christ will return with those who have fallen asleep. Uh, with the uh, shout of God, uh, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the Lord, in the air with the Lord, and we'll be with each other forever. So there's a sense where we're not, our loved ones, we can't say, well, they're dancing around in heaven in their new body. Not really. Uh, they're awaiting their resurrection body. That is still in the future. But it will be in conformity with Christ's body. Uh, the body we have right now is because we live in a fallen world. And Christians and non-Christians alike get sick. They get cancer. They have heart problems. Even God you know, himself, when he confronts Moses, is it not I who make man deaf or dumb or God takes responsibility for even deformities that we have in our body uh, because he allowed the world to fall. When sin entered into the world, the creation fell and our bodies fell, and we now have a fallen, sinful body. But God is in the process of redeeming that. But with that said, suffering certainly is not wasted. Uh, There are many purposes for suffering that God has, Uh, Some suffering, some sickness indeed comes from sin. And I suppose you could say in a broad sense, all suffering, all sickness comes from sin because had man not fallen, uh, we would be in perfect, good, holy resurrection bodies. Uh, But man did fall. So in a broad sense, all sickness comes from sin. But in a specific sense, some sickness comes from acts of sin, like at the pool of Bethesda where I was stood at a week ago. I reminded the people there that that man who had been paralyzed, Jesus gave him a specific warning uh, not to sin again uh, because it was clear in the context that what he had encountered was because of a, 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 a sin, an act of sin he had committed. So sometimes, you know, we can in, inherit a problem. Some Some Christians have high blood pressure and bad hearts because they're 
digging their own grave with a spoon. They don't take care of their bodies that God has given them, and that's part of our stewardship. We are to take care of that. Some sickness, like the man in John 9 who is congenitally born blind, was for the glory of God, and God uses some things for his glory. And in some things, you know, like, for instance, I think of Johnny Erickson Tata, who, you know, when she was 18 years of age, jumped off a dock and hit a stone in the Chesapeake Bay, and she became a quadriplegic. Again, Christians are not are not immune from problems. God could have certainly sent, I suppose, a angel of sorts to protected her from that, but some sickness, some infirmity is for the glory of God. Look, if um, sometimes people have asked over the years, well, once we become a child of God, why doesn't God just heal us of all our sicknesses? And by the way, that's the prosperity gospel. They say that's a real possibility, and they take a verse out of context, by his stripes you are healed, and their argument, Kenneth Copeland, Hagen, uh, Joyce Myers, all these false teachers, it fills auditoriums and their bank accounts, is that if you have enough faith, you can be healed, because just as you receive forgiveness through the atonement of Christ, you can receive physical healing through the atonement of Christ. Well, that's true, but not in this lifetime. Uh, it, the the physical um, healing in the atonement is still future when we receive our glorified bodies. That's not to say that God can't answer prayer, but there's no promise that God can heal all sickness or that God will heal all sickness. We're going to die sooner or later, and so we have to be prepared for that. And God has ordained the days that were written for us even before there was yet one in his book So he sometimes orchestrates events and situations to use us for his glory. God may have someone die earlier than maybe we thought would be right because there's 10 people at the funeral who are going to become Christians through the incident in which God brought him to heaven. So God sees things with the long view, with an eternal view. Some sickness Christians bring on themselves through sin, 1 Corinthians 11.30. Some of you are weak, some of you are sick. Some of you have even fallen asleep. That is, you've died. Why? Because of unconfessed, unrepented sin. And that's the ultimate expression of God's discipline when he takes a person home early. And so the scripture says there's a time when you shouldn't pray for a sin that is leading to physical death. If you know that someone is engaged in some physical malady that is headed towards death, Uh, because of unrepented sin. You don't pray for their healing. You pray for their repentance, that they might get their heart right. And if God so chooses to heal them, he can. Um, You know, God also uses, of course, sickness, weakness to strengthen us. Uh, The Apostle Paul, if you remember, uh, as spoke in 2 Corinthians 12. I'm just flipping there real fast here. And uh, he said he knew of a man, he's describing himself, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, God knows, who is caught up into paradise, paradisus. So this is not Old Testament paradise, this is New Testament paradise, same term, and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weakness, for I do wish to boast For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. 
because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. So Paul had some kind of thorn in the flesh. Some people say, well, it was his mother-in-law. Well, <laughs> I don't think so. Number one, Paul was never married. Um, it was some kind of physical ailment. If I were to make a biblical guess, so to speak, because we're not told definitively, it was probably his eyes. He encountered some kind of an eye problem on the first missionary journey. So he writes, if, if you could have plucked out your eyes and given them to me, that's how much you loved me, you'd do that. But concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he, the Lord Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So God uses weakness to make us dependent on him, to use us very often in a greater way than he might have otherwise used us had we not had that weakness. Great question. A lot more we could explore, but we've got people waiting, so let's go to the next question. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and we've got Joanna on line two from Bluffton. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thank you very much. My question is, I've been listening all week to David Jeremiah talking about Revelation, and I have some confusion as to when we're raptured, do we come into our um, our, our body, our new body, and then we come back with a new body to be in the millennium, and we live forever, and then we go to heaven? I'm really confused about it because I don't I don't understand what's happening to us in that in that millennium period. That's a great question, Joanna, and I am doing for those who are listening to us today on the Bible line a Bible prophecy series that I just began. I only have given two messages, and I expect to give 15 in the whole course, but we looked at in our first message the next great event on God's prophetic schedule, which is known as the rapture. So Paul says, we'll not have you to be ignorant or uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have died, so that we may not grieve as the rest who have no hope. They had asked Paul some questions. They weren't doubting the concept or the doctrine of the resurrection. That was actually taught all the way back in the Old Testament. But what they were wondering concerned the timing of the resurrection. Some of their people had died since Paul had been there. And Paul was only in Thessalonica for three weeks, but obviously Bible prophecy was important enough to him that even in those three weeks' time, he spoke of the end times event. And what a contrast that is to modern-day evangelicalism, where many people don't even address God's prophetic schedule. They think, well, they'll think I'm a wacko or not, or or sometimes they're just you know unsure themselves because they haven't spent the time to be diligent to study and show themselves approved in this realm. But he said, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, now listen carefully, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. What does he mean, bring with him? Well, because if you've died prior to the catching up, the rapture, he will bring with him those who have died. Why? Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The Bible does not teach, as Seventh-day Adventists and others falsely 
teach that when we die, we sleep body, soul, and spirit in the grave. The Bible is explicitly clear that the moment you die, one second after you die, you're carried to heaven. And so for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. It's not a loss, it's a gain because we continue to have, even in a richer way, um, fellowship with the Lord. And so Paul says on the one hand, you know, I want to serve you, but on the other hand, I desire to depart and be with Christ there in Philippians chapter 1. So when Jesus comes back, he'll bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. In other words, this is a subject that Jesus addressed. He said, in my father's house there are many rooms. Uh, The old King James has mansions, but the word mansion in the 16th century meant a room. Today we think of a mansion as some palatial building. But no, in the father's house there's many rooms. It's like a home. And uh, he says, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, where's Jesus right now in heaven, there you may be also. So first he comes for his saints. He takes us to heaven. And those who have already died prior to that taking, that catching up, he brings them back. Uh, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have died or fallen asleep. So here's their answer to their question. They were wondering what would be their state? When would they be raised? And uh, he says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So actually the first to come out of the grave, the first to come in a new resurrection body are those who've already died. And so they'll be raised up. They're a spirit that's now in heaven. And again, I mentioned in our first question, there's seemingly some temporary body, but that's not the resurrection body. And so their spirit in heaven comes back with Christ, reconnected to the body in the ground. But the body in the ground is not suitable for heaven. This mortal must put on immortality. This perishable must put on the imperishable, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, speaking of the rapture. And then he says, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So the Lord at the rapture carries us to heaven. We spend seven plus years there, and then we come back with him to the earth. So first he comes for his saints, then he comes with his saints to the earth. His feet will physically be planted on the Mount of Olives. He will judge the living and the dead. We will forever be in our resurrection bodies. And then during the millennial reign of the Messiah, we will rule and reign with Christ. And part of the responsibility we will be given will be based on our faithfulness now to the Lord. In tribulation saints who enter into, who survive the tribulation, not those who have died, they'll be in resurrection bodies, But those who survive the tribulation will enter the millennial reign of Christ in their natural bodies, and they'll be able to have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren over the course of a thousand years. Some people say, well, why doesn't he just take us all to heaven and be over with it? Stay tuned for the series. I will spend great time on the purpose of the millennial reign of Messiah. Let's go to the next question. All right. Well, Jeff has been very, very patient waiting for us. Jeff is from Savannah. Thank you so much for holding. You are on the Bible line. Hey, good morning, Dr. Brogy. Good morning, Rick. Um, We have a 
college-age Bible study, and the question came up last week, you know, what is the, uh, what are the aspects that make a human in the image of God? And, and specifically, I guess, do angels share those aspects? Are they also made in the image of God? And I'll hang up and I'll take the question off the air. Thank you. That's a great question. So there are aspects that angels share with humans, but they are different. We have been made and created above the angels. Someday the scripture says we will judge the angels. But there are aspects of personhood that angels share in that as you study the scripture, and I have a whole course on angelology for those who are interested at the Institute of Biblical Studies, if you get the Search the Scriptures app, you can download it. And if you want the notes that go with each of those messages, uh, you can call Search the Scriptures and they'll send you the links and you can print them out on your uh, printer at home. Occasionally someone doesn't own a printer and we're happy to send those notes to them. With that said, angels share the attributes of personhood and that they have mind, will, and emotion. And so that is certainly one aspect of being made in the image of God. And in that sense, you could say that angels too likely reflect the image of God. Um, man being made in the image of God, the Imago Dei, as it's often called by theologues from the Latin translation of the Bible that we use for nearly a thousand years, is that man has a free will. So man wasn't created in a way where all he could do was obey God. He had a choice. From any tree in the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. If God had made us where all we could do was obey, then we'd be more robotic than we would be humans made in his image. So one aspect of being made in the image of God is you have free will. Another aspect of being made in the image of God is unlike the animals that God created also on the sixth day, God breathed into man the breath of life and he became a living soul, a living being. So you never see a dog or a cat on their knees in prayer. You just see people in prayer. And sadly, because people have ascribed to the doctrine of evolution or some Christians who have falsely taught theistic evolution, they have made us almost like a higher evolved animal, a higher evolved two-legged animal. And so they try to make connections to the ape world and everything else. We're not animals. In fact, we're called to rule over the birds and the fish and the animals on the earth. And man failed in that, but Christ, the second Adam, he had command over all of them. He had the cock crow at just the right time. He had the fish jump into the nets at just the right time. Uh, He rode in uh, a donkey that had never been ridden before and under complete control. He did what Adam didn't do, but with that said... um, We are made in the Imago Dei, and we have the capacity and the desire to want to worship God. And so wherever you go in the world, man is innately religious. Now, man can suppress the truth of God and move from being monotheistic, say, to becoming polytheistic. Man, by nature, is monotheistic. So when you see people who are engaged in the worship of multiple gods, that's someone who is rejecting the truth that God has revealed about himself, and they are employing the worship of many gods. So 
uh, also part of being made in the image of God is we have, um, while God uniquely is eternal in nature, when God created man, he created us like himself and that he created us to exist for eternity. And so the fact that we will live forever is one aspect of God's nature. He has no beginning or end. Though when we are created, we take on the aspect of living forever, either with the Lord in heaven or apart from the Lord in the place of eternal retribution that God didn't create for the devil, that God didn't create for man, but only for the devil and his angels. So this is like a good spot for me to plug the Institute of Biblical Studies. What's the Institute of Biblical Studies? It's a 36-hour course of study that allows you to work through major aspects of theology. Uh, One of the courses that we offer in the Institute is called Anthropology. And so we walk through, I just gave you an eight-minute answer on what it means to be made in the image of God. In that course, I give the one-hour answer of what it means to be made in the image of God. In fact, some of the courses, they're all taught, by the way, on a master's level, whether it's anthropology, which would be the doctrine of man. We get the word from the word anthropos. Actually, that word was stolen from the realm of theology. Now it has secular connotations. Christology would be the doctrine of Christ. Bibliology, the doctrine of the Bible. And some of these courses have like, bibliology has over 500 pages of notes, which again, you can download, print out, uh, and study in depth. But We live in a theologically illiterate society where basic theology is not taught. And this is the beauty of expository preaching, that when you preach through whole books of the Bible, you're going to hit on these major topics. But there can be times where you can uh, study these topics in a holistic way. That's the nature of systematic theology. Well, what does Genesis say about the image of God? What does the New Testament say about the image of God? And you pull all the passages together. What does the Bible teach about the triunity of God in the Old Testament? What does it teach about the triunity of God in the New Testament? By the way, the Trinity of God is not exclusively a New Testament doctrine. It is certainly more fully developed and explained, but it's found in the Old Testament. So these are the kinds of issues that we study in the Institute of Biblical Studies. That's an excellent question you've asked, and I appreciate it, Jeff, I think from Savannah. Let's go to the next question. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and Emma from Buford dictated her question, what does the Christ the King Church believe? Well, I've heard of particular churches called Christ the King. I'm not aware of any denomination as such called Christ the King. So as you travel the country, you will see occasionally a church called Christ the King. What does it believe? Depends on that church. I think of one Christ the King church that was wildly charismatic, people fainting on the floor, calling it slain in the spirit, speaking in tongues, all kinds of excesses that are not found or documented in Holy Scripture. And then I think of another church, it was actually an Anglican church called Christ the King, that was was solidly biblical. I didn't agree with every aspect of their doctrine, especially, say, baptism. So uh, Christ the King Church is not a denomination. It's the name, an individual name, like Community Bible Church. So you might ask, well, what does the Bible Church movement believe? Well, now we have to say it depends. What does the Baptists believe? 
depends. So we live in a day because we're moving into that time frame known as the latter days where there would be growing apostasy. And so you have to carefully examine, just like the first question, FCA overall, fine organization. But I have witnessed some FCA movements that have been very aberrant in their teachings, where, for instance, they have a woman athlete opening and teaching the Bible expositionally in violation of 1 Timothy 2.12. So you have to look at each and every movement, organization, denomination, local church today. We have to be discerning, or you can easily uh, influence people in a less than healthy and biblical way. All right, very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Ed from Savannah writes, Dear Pastor Brogy, we are confused and frustrated. The joy of my salvation has been a power that I've been able to count on in my dealing with those unsaved persons that I know. But now I read a quote by C.H. Spurgeon that reads as follows. Christian, it is not with you that you may persevere or not. It is not an optional blessing. You must persevere or else all you have ever known or felt will be good for nothing to you. You must hold on your way if, my emphasis, you are ultimately to be saved. Also, perseverance is as necessary to a man's salvation as conversion. I can feel physical loss or strength and power in my care for others when I begin to care about my own salvation. Please help. Uh, P.S. This is from the book Spurgeon's Quotes, the Definitive Collection. Well, again, you know, you have to read Spurgeon enough to understand his overall teaching. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon was in no way denying salvation by grace alone through faith alone. But he was certainly addressing an issue, perseverance of the saints, which today most people summarize as once saved, always saved. And that's certainly one aspect of our salvation is that we are eternally secure. And the scripture is very clear that he that began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. But as Spurgeon, and rightly so, biblically so, used the term perseverance, it was in reference to those who confess Jesus and never stop confessing him, where the direction of their life has changed. Jesus spoke to this issue, if you were with us in our series in Revelation, and it's all online, the whole book. When he spoke to the church at Ephesus, he said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, or perseveres, you could say, I will grant uh, to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, we know from the end of the Revelation that the only people who will eat at the tree of life in heaven in the future will be indeed those people who have been saved by grace alone through faith alone. So there are two very distinct views on perseverance of the saints among Christians. There's the Arminian view that says it's possible for a true Christian to turn away from God and not to persevere. And so this is, I would say, consistent with their view of free will, and they make salvation at the center of free will. I'm not saying our will is not involved. Indeed, it is. But by nature, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We do not have a spark left in us where we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and come to Christ on our own. By his doing, Paul will say, you are in Christ Jesus. It's by his doing. That's not to deny free will. 
God works in the heart. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. And then we have to freely say yes or no to what God has revealed to us. So it's a decision of the will. But the Arminian teaches that free will is so strong since it begins with us, it can also end with us, and that we can freely reject Christ. And again, the the Bible is very clear that that's a total impossibility. In passages like 1 John 2 and verse 19, he says, children, to back it up a verse, it is the last hour. And just as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know it's the last hour. The last hour, because the Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ, began at Pentecost. They went out from us, these false teachers, but they were not really of us. How do we know? Because or for, if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. In other words, if you have salvation, you can't lose it. And if you've lost salvation, John's argument is you've never really had it to begin with. So the other aspect of perseverance is that Scripture affirms that once you're saved, you're saved forever. Once you're born again, you're born again forever. He who began a good work in you, Paul will write in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Um, Jesus gave that great promise. Let me just flip over there to John chapter 6. By the way, the Gospel of John is a great chapter to deal with the doctrine of eternal security and all of its uh, uh, promises that are done on the finished work of Christ. And in John chapter 6, in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that is the Father who sent me. This is the will of him, the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing. Let me underscore that. I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, not exception, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him, will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Jesus said, I didn't come to disobey the Father, but to obey the Father. And the Father's will is that everyone, without exception, all of them, all that the Father gives me and believes, will definitively be raised up on the last day. Now, with that said, what you're reading concerning Spurgeon, he is underscoring in that sermon, no doubt, These people who claim to be born again, but who seemingly uh, the direction of their life changes. And so they go back into the world and they live like the world. And such a person, Spurgeon is warning, should really examine himself. Paul said to the Corinthians, examine yourself to see if you be of the faith. Peter said, Make sure your election and calling is certain. Why? Because there are people who think they are saved, but they don't really have the fruit, the changed life that the new birth brings. And so the scripture teaches that those on the rocky soil, Jesus said, are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. That's what Spurgeon is dealing with. People who believe in their head, but not with the heart. He's not describing conversion belief, 
but intellectual belief. The demons believe and tremble, the Bible teaches. And so Jesus made a similar statement. Let me turn to the Olivet Discourse. And uh, he says, um, uh, they will deliver you to tribulation. The context is the great tribulation period. We're not there yet. It's going to happen after the church has been raptured. God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation. That doesn't mean we don't have problems. It doesn't mean we have tribulation, but that's the wrath of man. That's the wrath of Satan. This will be the wrath of Almighty God. And they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away. Uh, This is the concept of apostatizing. They will reject the faith. Why? Because their Christianity is external only. They've never had the genuine new birth. At this time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Because lawlessness, and John says sin is lawlessness, is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures, you could say, perseveres to the end, will be saved. So you're not saved by perseverance. You're saved by faith in Christ. But the one who is saved will persevere. And that's what Spurgeon is underscoring. So perseverance is used in two principal ways in Scripture. First, in relation to our salvation— But it's also used in reference to our sanctification. So we're admonished to persevere through trials, persevere through tribulation, and so on. Uh, But what Spurgeon is dealing with is the evidences of someone's new birth, whether or not it's genuine. Good question. By the way, this caller might want to listen to the Back to Basics series. It's available at searchthescriptures.com. And if you're really like torn up on the inside. We go through three proofs of how we can really know we have genuine assurance of salvation. And so it's the first lesson in that 45-week series. Yeah, searchthescriptures.org. Yes, it's searchthescriptures.org. All right, very good. Uh, Leonard from Enfield, Connecticut writes, can you define biblical dating? What does it look like and how to apply it in the church today? Well, the scripture doesn't really address dating as such because it's really um, a modern concept. Um, historically, uh, if you were to measure the centuries since creation, a lot of marriages were arranged. In fact, to this day, many marriages are still arranged in some cultures. Even in the Jewish culture, uh, at least those who are practicing Jews. I have a friend in uh, Jerusalem, a rabbi, I had dinner in his home last week and uh, the last time he we discussed this, he had arranged 135 marriages, and they've all worked, by the way, and they've all turned out to be happy marriages. With that said, there are some general principles about marriage, since dating leads to marriage, that we could apply in reference to, to dating. Let me talk about missionary dating for a moment. This is what we refer to when someone says, well, I want to date this girl because I want to lead her to the Lord. Well, maybe, um, maybe you want to date her because you, you like her or you're infatuated with her. But if she's an unbeliever, since dating is the chance to get to know a person to see whether they might potentially be compatible to spend the rest of your life with, you don't want to do missionary dating. Now, if there's some young woman that you're burdened for, some young man, then do it in a group context bring him to a place where he hears the gospel and see how he'll respond. 
But I would say with a sense of caution, make sure it's genuine. I've seen before, not with anyone that I've married, but with people who've told me in their office what I would call a marriage altar conversion. That is someone who, quote unquote, became a Christian so that he or she could marry a particular individual. And then after they're married, their Christianity goes south. Why? Because they only wanted to marry the person. Uh, but not necessarily embrace the faith. And so God's very clear in Second Corinthians chapter 6, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Nothing is the uh, rhetorical answer to this question. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So again, we don't have fellowship in the truest sense. We're not to be bound with unbelievers. It's not that we're not supposed to care for them. We are. We're supposed to care for their souls. We're supposed to evangelize the lost. But the scripture reminds us, you know, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And so you do not want to um, bind yourself to an unbeliever. You want to bind yourself to someone who's not just a confessing Christian, but someone who's com, com, who's passionate about the Lord Jesus, that's the kind of person you want you want to marry, uh, because then you're going to work through problems and challenges that you have under God's grace. If you remember Solomon, uh, and you can read First Kings eleven, the Bible says he loved many foreign women, and he took many foreign women, and, and he was in violation of the law in Deuteronomy seventeen seventeen, where God says, "Don't do that." because it'll capture your heart. And and so he fell into the idolatry. And you say, well, we don't worship idols today. Yes, we do. There are all kinds of idols. Greed is idolatry. Sexual immorality is idolatry, Paul says to the church at Coloss. So there are many different expressions. It's anything that you put above the living God. So anyway, I hope that helps. There's some general principles. What I suggest to young people today is, you know, if a guy likes a particular girl, then maybe bring them over to the family if this person is, you know, still under the roof of their parents and bring them into a family situation where you can get to know them and to see whether they maybe even share the same values that you do. Good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Anthony is on line one. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Good morning, Pastor. Your son-in-law did a good job on Sunday. Great job. Uh, Yes, thank you. What I would like to ask you is, um, I know the Bible is filled with promises from God. I know we, I imagine, if I'm correct, if I'm wrong, I imagine we have limited promises, general promises, conditional promises, and maybe some unconditional promises, if, if I might say. Can... We take a promise, just say, for example, like Philippians 4.19, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches in his glory in Christ Jesus. Can, can we take the promises of God to mean something totally different 
And if I might ask a question, could we ask the same thing about the will of God along with the promises of God, if you could understand me? Sure. No, that's a great question. So let me respond. Certainly there are conditional promises that God makes, and there are unconditional promises. Think of Israel. God made an unconditional promise to Abraham while he was asleep. It was a unilateral covenant that he would be faithful to Israel even if they were faithless. And God said, as long as the stars are in the sky and the moon and the sun are up there, that's how long I will be committed to the uh, group of people we call Jews. And so the church is not the new Israel. On the other hand, God made conditional promises to Israel. Deuteronomy 28 to 30. You know, I was in Israel last week, and I'm often asked, man, what do you mean a land flowing with milk and honey? It looks like it's a land flowing with rock and dirt and somewhat barren. That's because God did what he promised conditionally, that if you obey me, I'll bless the land If you disobey me, I'll bring judgment on the land. And that's what happened to the land of Israel. Uh, Again, you come into the New Testament, there are conditional and unconditional promises. He that began a good work in you will absolutely, unconditionally complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's an unconditional promise. If we are genuinely born again, we are going to be raised from the dead no matter what. But here's an unconditional promise. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So you talk about God providing for all our needs in Christ Jesus. That has to be obviously put in the context of Philippians. Paul had a heart for God. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He admonished them, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy, my crown. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Rejoice in the Lord. Let your spirit be gentle. Be anxious for nothing. These are all commands. Whatever is true and right and honorable and pure, let your mind set on these things. So if we're living this kind of life, then we could claim the promise. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can claim the promise that he will indeed supply all of my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. But if I'm living in disobedience and there are unmet needs, it may be an aspect of God's discipline because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And so a conditional promise is if you abide in me, you're living for me, and my word is living in you because sanctification is in conjunction with our knowledge of Scripture. In other words, God's called us to a certain lifestyle. But if we're obeying what we know, then we can ask God because then the prayer that we have is going to be according to his will, and we can expect him in his grace and in his mercy to answer that prayer. But yeah, all the time people take verses out of context and They expect God to fulfill it when they have not met the conditions of the promise. So context is everything. And so when you read Philippians, you see the lifestyle that God has called us to, and it's in the context of that lifestyle that Paul makes some of these statements. Good question. Let's go to the next. Okay. I hope we've got enough time here for uh, our next question. Let me go to it real quick. Um, Actually, I thought we were Let me just say that uh, those who are joining us for the first time, 
many times if there's a text of Scripture that you're uncertain of, uh, if you download the Search the Scriptures app, for instance, I preach verse by verse through the whole book of Philippians. So you might say, oh, well, let me just turn to Philippians and, oh, the fourth chapter and, oh, he preached four sermons in Philippians 4 and, oh, here's my verse. It's the third sermon and you can listen to it. And most of the times, many of these questions will, will be answered. All right, here we go. Thomas from Midway, Georgia, writes, I know that Moses wrote Genesis through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. However, I was wondering when in Moses' life did this happen, and is it mentioned anywhere else in Scripture pinpointing this date? Well, the Scripture doesn't necessarily pinpoint the exact year, and there are some books in the Bible we can say, well, this was written in 62 A.D. because of the chronological markers that you know, surround it. Uh, but with Moses, we know he was obviously the author, and there are many liberals in our day who deny Mosaic authorship, and they come up with a JEPD theory and multiple authors, and, well, they're going against what Jesus said. Jesus said, haven't you read Moses and the Scripture, Moses and the prophets? And so he believed Moses read, uh, authored the first four books of the Bible, and he quoted it as such, as being done with Moses. So when in Moses' lifetime? Well, you think about it, 40, 40, 40 is how Moses' life divides, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years of really preparation and breaking in the desert, and then 40 years of leading the children of Israel. And so Moses wrote Genesis in the time frame after the people were brought out of Egypt. So what time frame was that? Well, in 1 Kings 6, which I've just turned to, it says, and it came about in the 480th year, after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel and the month of Ziv, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. And so the fourth year of Solomon's reign is about 966 B.C. And 480 years before that would bring us to approximately 1445 B.C. And so it's during the next 40 years between 1445 and um, 1405, the first five books of the Old Testament were written. Certainly he didn't write, I mean, you know right off he had to have written Leviticus, Numbers, Exodus, and Deuteronomy because they're surrounding the events of those 40 years. And certainly God had to break Moses and prepare him spiritually before he's even going to record the book of Genesis. So while we cannot pinpoint the exact year, we can pinpoint the time frame in which he wrote it. He wrote these during the time of wandering in the desert. We're out of time, but thank you today for joining us for Search the Scriptures. And if you live within a 50-mile radius of Beaufort, we invite you to Community Bible Church of Beaufort. We also have a, a church site in Jasper County in Gray, South Carolina, and one in Aiken County in Granitville. God bless you. I hope you will walk with Jesus Christ today.